All right, we are uh, we're continuing our our month long trek in the the Pride movement. So this is week two. We're talking on marriage today, marriage and the Pride movement mixed together here, and what it means. Uh, this obviously didn't just start recently. This was uh, maybe somebody can correct me, but I want to say this all really started back in the '90s when the push for for gay marriage originally started, if I remember right. Um, but anyways, if we're going to talk about marriage, I just wanted to cover briefly though, why marriage is, is so beneficial because if it wasn't, we wouldn't care about all this. That's where it basically comes down to here. So I'm going to, we're going to talk about a couple scriptures. Um, like I said, I, I like to focus on them more than what I have to say, hopefully, because who better to to explain it than God and his scriptures. Um, So why marriage is beneficial for us? Uh, We start back in Genesis in 2.18, and you don't have to follow along if you don't want. But in Genesis 2.18, then the the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable to him. So we talked about this, I think, briefly last week. But... The main point of that passage there is that Adam was lonely, and God said it wasn't good for him to be lonely. So one of the benefits that we see of marriage right off the bat is companionship, partnership. Anybody who's been married a long time will attest to that. Also in uh, Hebrews 13.4, it says... Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Now, there's a lot more in that passage than what I wanted to talk about briefly, but basically what I'm saying as far as the benefits here is that marriage is made for intimacy, and humankind is inclined to that. So that is another benefit to marriage for us. 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 2 to 3 and, and 9 says, But because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to the wife, and likewise the wife also to her husband. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passions. So, if we started in Genesis, we would see that man and woman were made for each other, that God has given a command to multiply. So, excuse me. <laughs> we know that God has instilled a desire for men and women to be with each other. And what Paul is saying here is that if you can't be single and just focus all your energy on God because of this desire that God has instilled in us, he says you better get married so that you don't sin, is what he's saying there. So that is a benefit that marriage is for us. And we briefly touched on this already, but Genesis 1.28 is where God says, and He blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Procreation is a benefit of marriage. Yes, obviously that can happen outside of marriage, but that was not its intention. And it's blessed here in the context of marriage, not outside of marriage. 
And as a side note, I would uh, partially say, or maybe this is just my opinion, that having children also helps bring you closer to God, which is part of the procreation, because I don't know how many times that some of my children don't do what I want them to do, and I think, why won't you just listen to me? And then I think, wow, how many times has God said that to me? How many times? So it helps you to understand your own relationship with God as well. Now, biblical marriage teaches real love. There is cultural love. There is societal love. But if you'll notice, that is pretty fleeting. I mean, you can look at the divorce rates. You can look at the, the rates of people that live with people that live with someone, don't get married, and then they break up down the road. I mean, it's not a good thing because it comes and goes because it's not anchored anywhere. The church divorce rate, as far as I could find, is 30% which I don't think is very good either. That seems to be the culture influencing the church, which seems to happen quite a bit. Matthew 7, 24-27 says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell on the flood, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and yet did not fall. For it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on him will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against the house, and it fell and collapsed. Marriage in the context of faith has a rock to, to uh, center itself on, to, to anchor itself to. Because you can't anchor yourself, your marriage, to just your spouse. People are going to mess up. We all do. And if your spouse is the only thing that's holding your marriage together, it's a little rough. But if your marriage is being held together by your relationship with God, by the vows that you made before God, that makes a huge difference. That is the way marriage was intended. When we talk about love, now this ver these, these verses are not, they were not written necessarily in the context of marriage, but I want you to listen to them and just think of how they would have an effect on a marriage. So we're in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. It says, Love is patient, love is kind, it is not jealous. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act disgracefully. It does not seek its own benefit. It is not provoked. It does not keep an account of wrong suffering. Of wrong suffered, sorry. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It keeps every confidence it believes all things, all things hope, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. With those attributes, granted they are meant for our, the rest of our life as well outside of marriage, but inside of marriage, how can you have a marriage any stronger than that? 
Those are attributes that we all need. Those are attributes that I fail on a lot, ask my wife. Those are things that I pray to God to sanctify me in, that I can practice them better. Marriage, and I think most people would agree with this, helps you to grow. A healthy marriage, there's a change that happens. A, you know, a lot of times when you're single, you're young, you got different things on your mind, you tend to be a little more selfish. Um, you can see that in children. When they're little, they're kind of selfish. They want what they want, the kind of things like that. But in marriage, there should be a transfer to selflessness from selfishness. It starts when you get married and you suddenly have somebody else that you're accountable to, that you're responsible for, because each person should be responsible for the other, that you're worried about. And then the kids come in the mix and it gets even more, right? I worry about a lot of things that I didn't worry about before before I had kids and wife and all that, right? Because it's our job to care for one another. (laughs) <laughs> so marriage, like I kind of said earlier, it does point you to God, though, because when we talked about how your spouse could fail you, they're not going to live up to your, to your standards. We all fail. We're all sinners. We all have issues in our own lives that we're trying to work on, that we're praying to God to work on for us. And when your spouse fails, that is when you turn to God. And in the same way that God would forgive you and does forgive you for all of your sins, you forgive your spouse, right? <clears throat> so marriage is beautiful when it is anchored by God. It's not going to be perfect, but it will be beautiful with God's presence in it. Now those are attributes of marriage. Those are attributes of biblical marriage. This LGBT movement, the marriages that they promote are not valid. Now, somebody could make an argument and they probably have in the past for civil unions, that's a different thing. But actual marriage, they are not. They're not ordained by God. They're not recognized by God. They're not looked upon with favor by God. And they're not real. I know that sounds mean to say, but God has said how marriage is. And they are outside of those guidelines. So that is not a marriage. The world can give us definitions all day long. I can make up definitions all day long, but if it is not in God's Word, if it is not in line with it, it's false. This is why I'm always talking about how because we believe in the true and living God, that we have objective laws that are given to us that God's Spirit urges us to follow as best as we can. You know, people will tell you there's no such thing as an objective law. Well, is what you just told me objective? Does that make any sense? Obviously, there are objective laws because God exists. But God 
Israel and God designed marriage as He saw fit, not as we saw fit. Otherwise, things would be possibly different. When we talk about LGBT, the first three letters in that acronym all have to do with homosexuality. They just do. People have tried to make the arguments that the Bible doesn't speak on this, and I don't even understand how you can get to that point unless you just don't read it. That's the only way you can get there. A common one is Leviticus 18.22, where it says that you shall not sleep with a male as one sleeps with a female. It is an abomination, and obviously that is reciprocated to the other sex as well. Um, I have heard arguments on this that, oh, they were just talking about pedophilia. Well, let me tell you, that same Jewish word for male right there pops up like 80 more times in the Old Testament. And each time it's for a male, it's not for a child. So they can make these arguments, but they, they don't really go anywhere. We've, uh, we've covered this verse many times, but I'll read it again just for this sake. Um, in Romans 1, 26-27, and also 32, it says, For this reason... God gave them over to a de degrading passions, for their women exchanged their natural relations for that which is contrary to nature. And likewise, men too abandoned their natural relations with women and burned with their desires towards one another. Males with males committing shameful acts and receiving their own persons the due penalty of their error. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they approve of those who practice them. That last verse is so important because how many people, when it comes to certain sins, will say, I won't do that, but it's not my place to say whether or not it's wrong. The Bible is telling us, God is telling us, that condoning sin is just as bad as committing sin. That's what it says. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10 also says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the homosexuals, and it goes through a list here, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And notice here, we're not just picking on people in this movement. If you're married and you're doing something outside of your marriage, you're in just as much trouble. You are not living in the light of God. Or if you're outside of marriage and you're doing these kind of things. So heterosexuals are not left out of this. That last letter in that acronym, in that LGBT, that is the transgender movement. Uh, there's just, I mean, there's, you could spend an hour talking about this because it's just so bizarre and, that, and it's so ungodly. The scenarios that you're looking at with this would be a trans man, which is a woman who thinks that she's a man, with a woman. That's obviously against Scripture. Or a trans woman, which is a man who thinks he's a woman, with another man. That's obviously against Scripture. Or a trans man and a trans woman, which would be a woman who thinks that she's a man, and a man who thinks she's a woman together. There is something wrong with all of this. This is not as if it was designed by God. And people are just doing what they want because they have subjective morality that's not grounded in the objective laws of God. 
It's whatever they feel is right. And that is such a dangerous path. And it's such a common thing that, that is brought up, but I always do bring it up. If, if the laws in this world are subjective, then Hitler or Stalin or Mao, none of those people were wrong. They were just against your opinion. Laws have to be objective or they have no meaning. And that goes most certainly for God's laws. But none of this is marriage. It's just a sinful fantasy or perversion that the world has embraced and now is pushing everywhere. You can't turn on the TV. You can't turn on the radio. You can't go to the grocery store. You can't put on a kid's program without seeing this stuff being pushed. And that's why it's important to talk about because we have a next generation that we are responsible for and that we have to teach them truth. Because if we don't, the world's going to teach them their truth. That's just the way it is. And I'm not, and I've said this before, I'm not coming down on people for sinning. People are naturally sinners. We are still sinners even while we are being sanctified by Christ. We are talking, living in deliberate sin. That is the difference. Living in sin. <clears throat> but God, He loves real marriage, not this marriage that is coming up now. He uses marriage constantly in the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 62.5, there's a verse here, and it's speaking of the Jews, but we are grafted into them now. And it says, For as a young man marries a virgin so your sons will marry you. And as the groom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. God is using marriage as an analogy here of how He feels when people come to Him. And He's using it because He has already defined it by this point. <clears throat> I want to go into um, Ephesians for a minute here. Ephesians 5, 22-25, and then a couple other verses up until 33. Just kind of skipping around here to the ones that pertain to what we're talking about. But it says, Wives, subject yourself to your own husbands as the Lord... Now, I want you, as we're, as we're uh, reading this, I want you to pay attention to the verbiage. Pay attention to the words that are used in Scripture, okay? Wives, subject yourself to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Now it keeps going. I'm actually going to stop right there, but it keeps going into different passages on there, but the verbiage stays the same. And what am, I, what am I getting at with that? When we're reading Scripture, you have two ways of looking at Scripture, really. It's either inspired by God, meaning God inspired these people, these many different authors, to write the words that they chose because He wanted them to use those. Or... It's all made up. Those are the two ways you can look at this. Now, 
assuming that we all believe that God has inspired these words. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't leave out details. He doesn't just passively forget something. I want you to notice in these words, he only uses wives and husbands. He doesn't use husbands and husbands, wives and wives. He doesn't get into any gray areas like this. It's this and it's this. That's what God has said. And farther down the line, which I didn't go into, I guess I should have, he talks of fathers and mothers. He doesn't talk about mothers and mothers, fathers and fathers. Now, if it was legit, I find it hard to believe that in all the books of Scripture that God would never mention it, that He would never ordain it. He gives us everything that we need to know. So, what about the common objection? Don't you follow Jesus? Jesus never mentioned anything about homosexuality. That's That's the common objection. Now, in the New Testament, yes, Jesus never says the word homosexuality. He doesn't say it. But He does talk about what marriage is. In Matthew 19, 3-4 and 6, the Pharisees were coming to Him and they were talking to Him about if it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And He goes, He answers, He says, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female so that they are no longer two but one flesh? Therefore, what God has joined together, no man, let no person is to separate. He's quoting Genesis. He's quoting the marriage that has been set up already. The guidelines that have been set up. But, if we are to believe that Christ is God, which He is, I'm pretty sure He was around whenever He said anything in the Old Testament. So it's incorrect to say that Jesus never spoke on this. Jesus never spoke on that. Anytime God has spoken on something, the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son have all spoken on it. That is the important part there. So, these LGBT marriages are not valid because they are not marriages like we have said. They're bad for men and women. This is not what God has set up for us to thrive. They're bad for the rearing of children. Many of those relationships cannot produce children anyways. They can only acquire them. And I know a lot of people, especially from back home, that are in this lifestyle. You could say that they're nice people, I guess. But that doesn't make what's going on right. If you think I'm a nice person, but I go home and I throw down a 24-pack and I beat up Robin... Does that make it right just because I'm a nice person? No. That's not the way these things work. Things are right or they're wrong in God's eyes. And that is why we need a Savior. And just because somebody is nice, like I said, that doesn't justify this. There's a lot of sins that if we said we're going on in a house, you would say, well, maybe kids shouldn't be there. And I'm talking about the deliberate sins, like I said before. These things are a detriment to a marriage, to a family. They're not a plus. 
So, like I said, God has expressed over and over again in Scripture that marriage is between man and a woman. Anything outside of that is harmful to us. It is harmful to society. We're seeing all sorts of crazy things going on in society now. People wonder why the kids are all screwed up. This is part of it. It's not all of it, but it's part of it. We have, as a society, strayed away from the light of God. So, Christianity, the church, people of the body of Christ, we can't just we can't condone this. We can't say, oh, it's all right. It's not for me, but it's okay for them. That's not the view that Scripture has for us. We can't condone what is an outright lie, that God is okay with this, or that it's not harmful. We have to speak. We have to preach on the truth of God, not on the emotions of society. Because that's just going to lead us further and further down the rabbit hole, and it doesn't seem to be stopping anywhere. So, these people, all people, but especially people living in deliberate sin, they need the gospel. They need true repentance and faith. What was that again? Remember when we talked about repentance? It wasn't just confessing your sins. It was having that change of mind. You no longer like that sin. You hate it. You hate when you do that sin. That's the kind of repentance and faith that people need. So we should pray for everyone who's stuck in this, who's stuck in this lifestyle, in this, in this haze, because they are not living in God. So pray that God would soften their hearts, that He would set them free from their sin, not just sexual sin, but all sin, and that we would all speak that truth about these issues and that we would speak it in love. Because these are the same people that we need in this church. Everyone needs Christ. And we need to teach God who God is, what God wants for us. We have to teach this to the next generation. Otherwise, marriage will continue to be perverted in the way that it has been.